Think about this. Our brains change. Memory is an amazing. What you think is in our there brains is aren't really finished. They're not fully cooked yet. You go with your heart. You we don't have any idea why yeah, we're, we're doing so smart. most of the things that we're doing. But here's the deal. What's the problem with the flip-flop? I'm Bob Duke. I'm Art Markman. I'm Rebecca McEnroy, and this is Two Guys on Your Head. Today, the psychology of editing and flip-flopping. There are times where people actually don't want to accept input from others because they, they believe they've got it covered. And I see this a lot with, um, with for example, fellow academics um, who, who then want to write not just for other academics in the, in the very stilted prose that, that we use in academia, um, but they want to. They, they they really want to want to write for for another audience, and um, and so they send work to to someone who then edits it for clarity, and and often these are people who are unwilling to accept those edits because they feel like I've been a very successful writer in my domain for so long. Who are you to tell me how to do this better? But it turns out that. Audience design is difficult, and writing for people who have years of experience in an area isn't the same as writing for uh, people who you're, where you're introducing the topic for the first time. And it requires a, a very different skill set, and it's actually extraordinarily important to have people who are skilled at that to go back over what you've written and give you feedback and, and help you learn to do that effectively. Yeah. They, they understand the user interface in ways that you don't. That's correct. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And you have to be willing to accept that. And I think that sometimes when you when you believe you already have the expertise, it can be difficult to then accept feedback from people who, um, who are trying to essentially tell you that you may not be quite as expert in this as, yeah. as you think. Well, and, and I think one theme that, that connects all the instances that we've just talked about is that not staying with your original idea requires more work. It yeah. requires more effort. And there's a disincentive, right? yeah. <laughs> a huge one right there, right? Because if I stay with what I've got, whether it's I don't have to think anymore, I don't need to read anymore or research anymore or find out anymore. And again, there are many instances where it doesn't matter. It's good enough. This satisfies in Herb Simon's word, right? But yeah. In many things where it's important to really refine something to a high level, accepting something too soon actually is not the optimal choice. Actually, it's better to invest more time in reconsidering something uh, that you would otherwise not do unless either you yourself or someone else in your sphere says, you know, you really need to spend some more time on this because this isn't the way it should be. And this brings us to flip-flopping. Ah, so one of the things that fascinates me is that we have actually turned sticking with your first opinion into a virtue in many situations. So one of the things that happens politically, for example, is that someone will stake out a position politically in their life and then sometime later change their mind and be accused of flip-flopping on an issue. Now, it is true that in politics, every once in a while, someone adopts a particular position not because they, they have thought it through carefully, but because they believe that that position is one that their audience, the voters, want to hear. But the fact is, well, how does it go? A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, right? And we have to recognize that, that as we learn more, 
it is okay to change your ideas about how to pursue something and that it isn't really a sign of weakness that you've edited something. What What's what's the problem with the flip-flop? Is it the fact that you changed your mind or that you gave the impression at the when you made your first assertion that you were certain that it was correct and there was no way that it wasn't correct? And I think the enterprise that understands this well is, is science. And interestingly, the strength of science is perceived by people, many people who are not scientists, as a weakness. Why can't you be certain about that? Why do you have to say things like, the present research seems to indicate that, <laughs> I mean, why do you talk like that? Why don't you say, stop eating so much salt? <laughs> well, because the people who are writing that recognize that this is a tentative conclusion, as almost all scientific conclusions are, which is why it makes it science and not just, you know, some certitude or something. And that there's a possibility that as new information arrives and we determine other things that we can't measure right now or aren't aware of right now, we may change our minds. So one quick thing before we leave this, and this is really quick, like, are we teaching writing and like revision incorrectly? Yes. Yes. So like give give instructors instruction on how to better help your students be comfortable with revision. One of the things that we have to do when we teach writing is to is to give our students experiences of recognizing some of the limitations of their own writing. So a lot of what we do with writing, even when we give students opportunities to revise, is that they get editing from someone else Mm -hmm. that they have to incorporate in what they've done. And it's either uh, editing from a teacher or peer editing where one student will give feedback to another student. And of course that's valuable also. I'm not saying don't do that. But we need to create opportunities for students to notice the flaws in their own work. Because until you can also notice some of the flaws in your own writing, it becomes very hard to revise because those revisions that you make don't get better. They just get different. Yeah. And that, and that's a huge thing about the time span that's required. I mean, most of the things that happen in the schools happen in a really sh- relatively short span of time. And the idea of putting something away for a week or more and then coming back to it, I, I think very few children have that experience where they do something, they make an effort at something, then go away from it for a while, and then come back to their work. And before anybody even gives them any feedback about it, say, just without anybody saying anything, how could you make that better? You know, I started doing that under undergraduate classes. I had a due date for an assignment, and everybody turned it in. I didn't put a mark on it. The next class that I gave it back, I said, by the next class, I want you to make this better. Everybody made their paper better. So the, so the question I said is, why didn't you do that the first time? And the answer is because that was my first time. So, so I, I worked on it. I thought really hard. I did the thing. And then I turned it in. But what they've not experienced is without anybody grading it or giving feedback, I just handed the paper back. I said, make this better. And everybody's paper got better. Next week, we'll explore Framing Discourse with Dr. Art Markman and Dr. Bob Duke. You can listen back to this show at KUT.org or subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. David Alvarez is our engineer, and I'm Rebecca McEnroy. I produce Two Guys on Your Head at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas.